We are past the halfway point in our study through the book of Hebrews. Good job. We're studying through the book of Hebrews right now. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be picking up in chapter 10 today. We've got free Bibles right at the shelf at the back door that you're welcome to grab. If you need one forever, you can have it. Write your name in the front cover. We always give away free Bibles. Or look it up on your phone or whatever. Or just borrow a Bible and put it back at the end of the service if you just forgot yours. We're going to be in chapter 10 if you want to go and turn there. But we're actually going to do some, uh, some build up to it because 10 chapters is a lot. And I want to kind of recap where we've been this whole time. Uh, the book of Hebrews is in the New Testament of the Bible. That's the second part of our Bible like the last third of the book, and it's near the end of that. And it serves as a really important kind of bridge between the Old Testament message from God, which involved the temple system and the priests and sacrifices and stuff like that, and the New Testament system of God, which uh, is, is Jesus and his whole plan for salvation and what it means to open up salvation to all the world, not just to the Jewish people. Uh, and the author of Hebrews writes to a group of specifically Jewish Christians. The early church were primarily Jewish people at the beginning until it began to spread to the rest of the, the Greek and Roman world and then throughout the rest of the world. Um, and so he references a lot of Old Testament ideas and a lot of Old Testament practices. And this is why. He lays out his thesis for the whole book we kind of identify it as a letter. It's not so much a letter. It's more of a sermon, really, but it's kind of one of the letters. But he, he kind of gives the thesis to his whole letter, book, sermon in the first two verses of Hebrews. And so I'm going to look at that again real quick. It'll be on the screen. This is the point he's making. He says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors. He's talking to a group of Jewish people through prophets at various times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so that's his thesis passage. Uh, summary is this. He's saying this. We serve a God who speaks to us. In the past, he's done it in a lot of different ways. But through Jesus, he has sent his greatest messenger with his greatest message. And so then he goes through the rest of the book, and he kind of goes through Jewish history, and he looks at some of the other messengers that have come. So last week, we talked about the priests, probably the largest and longest-running group of messengers uh, on the earth from God, the priests. And he basically says, listen, the priests were really important. They had a really important duty. The temple was important. But through Jesus, we get a more perfect uh, entry into the kingdom of God. And we have what he calls, through Jesus, the great high priest who establishes a new priesthood and a new temple system. And so, and we'll get to that in just a second. But this is, it's like the priests were great, but Jesus is greater. The week before that, we talked about Moses, the most prolific name in all of Jewish history. In fact, probably uh, their very religious system was often called the law of who? Moses. And so, like, they really revered Moses. And he was like, yeah, Moses was really important in the house of God. But Moses was just a servant in the house of God. Jesus is the son of God. He's the heir to the throne. So a really big deal there. And so he's like, Moses is great. But Jesus' message is, is even greater. And then the week before that, we got into chapter 1 and 2. And we were talking about the angels. God's most powerful messengers. Probably no being on, in all of creation as powerful as the angels outside of God himself. And he's like, the angels are powerful. But Jesus is more powerful and his message is more important than the message that they brought. So that's kind of like the theme. And he continues it on through the book. Uh, Last week, we stopped off at chapter 7. We talked about a guy named Melchizedek, and I kind of brushed over his story, but maybe you read chapter 7, maybe you picked up chapter 8 and chapter 9, where we continue the conversation about Jesus being the great high priest. But in chapter 10, we get to a turning point. Today will be at what I call, I got this from someone else, a hinge passage. What is a hinge passage? A hinge moment in your life is when, like, 
everything turns, everything changes. And so it's like from this point on, things are different. And we have lots of hinge moments in our life. In 1999, the summer of 1999, I had a huge hinge moment. I was actually at the same summer camp that I'm about to go to today. Uh, and uh, I was standing in a group of people and something clicked in my brain where I felt a pulling from God where I decided to step away from my life ambition to be a rock star, real true story, to be a traveling musician who also was a high school band teacher. That was my trajectory. Had college scholarships lined up. I knew the courses I wanted to take. I knew where I wanted to go. You were there, Glenn. I just saw you sitting there. Glenn was there. Um, and, and a couple of you were there, actually. And I was sitting in this moment, and I said, no, I want to serve God in a different way. And so I, I, it was a hinge moment for me. I decided to go into vocational ministry. I went on to college. I became a youth pastor for about 10 years. And then like 12 years ago, I started this journey of being a church planter and like a lead pastor and all that stuff. And everything from that moment for me, thousands of choices were different now because of the one choice that I made. You see what I mean? It's a hinge moment. Everything pivots on that point. Another huge hinge moment was my wedding day. You know, and my, my wife and I, we made a commitment to each other. And no longer are we going to like play the field and date people and be, live the single life. No, from here on out, we're going to love and be devoted to one person for the rest of our life. And that was a major hinge moment. Many of you have that hinge moment. We had hinge moments when our children were born, each one. And so that happens on a personal level. It happens on a, a, a larger level, like a, a society level. Most of us in this room remember 9-11. If you were alive during 9-11, some of you are a little younger and you don't really remember that, but uh, most of us do. And you probably remember where you were when you heard that there was an attack on American soil. And that was a hinge moment for the world. It changed how we talked about world global politics. It changed how we talked about travel. We, we, like, we had to reinvent how we did war and identifying the good guys and the bad guys. Like everything changed. It was a hinge moment for society. Most recently, we've had a hinge season the worldwide pandemic and you know we still don't really know how things are going to be different from here on out but you can see that it's different and so in the same way uh hebrews chapter one through nine takes all this time to explain who jesus is and why his message is a greater message than all the messages that came before and why he as a messenger is a greater messenger than all the messengers that came before and and that's one through nine and then when we get to chapter 10 there's this hinge moment it's a response. It's a moment that says, because of all this, in the Bible, there's a great word that means hinge moment. We see it a lot, especially in the book of Romans. The word is therefore. When you see a, ther a therefore in the Bible, you know that something's hinging. A lot of stuff has been explained, and now there's going to be a response. And so we're going to pick up now. I told you we're going to be in Hebrews 10. We finally got there, starting at verse 19. And we are only going to cover uh, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 today. I'm going to give us a break. As we've gone through these chapters, man, there have been a couple of weeks where I've read in its entirety almost two whole chapters of the Bible. That's a lot of scripture to cover in one sitting. This is a little more uh, bite-sized and digestible, but it's still very, very good for us. 19 through 25. We're going to read it all the way through without commentary, and then we're going to break it up and look at the component parts, and then we're going to read it again. And at the end of the day, you should have a good handle on what this is and what our response should be. Because of the acts of Jesus on the cross. So let's pick it up there. Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, hinge moment. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. 
with sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up on meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So to fully grasp this hinge passage, you really have to get a good feel from where we're coming from. I just gave us a summary. Let me give us the summary again in a different way. We started in that verse 1 and 2 with the thesis passage. We have a God who speaks to us. In many times and in various ways, but now through Jesus, he's speaking to us more clearly with a stronger message. In chapters 1 and 2, we talk about the angels and all the things that the angels did. But now, God has come in person, not sending a messenger, but coming himself to deliver the message. In chapters 3 and 4, he did it through Moses. And we get the law, and we get this uh, fairly complicated and unfortunately incomplete system, but a system nonetheless that gives us forgiveness and the priesthood and the temple and all of that. But through Jesus, we enter into a new priesthood. We talked about in uh, 5 through 9, chapters 5 through 9, that Jesus is the great high priest. And this is a place where I want us to understand the temple system and how it shifted. Because no longer is there a time where God is going to basically force us to make a trip to Jerusalem. And we've got to go into this certain place and there's a certain building. And it's shut off. Uh, there's an inter-sanctuary that's shut off from anyone except for the high priest. But no, through Jesus' resurrection, the presence of God, which used to most strongly dwell in the innermost sanctuary of the temple. This is beautiful, guys. We get him with us. We're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that if we repent and we are baptized in the name of Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Theologians have called this the indwelling gift. And so then in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're told that our bodies are now, do you know what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter, we're told that we are the living stones that create the temple and that we get to live out spiritual uh, priestly sacrifices. We're told that we are a priestly nation. We become the people who now can represent uh, ourselves to God. You don't have to go to a priest to make a sacrifice because Jesus did it once for all. And then now you don't have to go to a priest to pray for you, but you can pray on your own behalf and on the behalf of other people. The shift happens. And that's what those first three verses, we'll look at them again. So now we're going to break down that big passage. 19 through 21 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, where is that most holy place now? It's here. You can carry it with you every day by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. There was a time where there was an inner sanctuary and there was physically a curtain that only the high priest could cross through. But basically there's a story of Jesus that's beautiful at his resurrection. This temple veil tears from top to bottom. Top to bottom showing that it's a miraculous thing. Not bottom to top. It's really tall. If you were humans you'd have to pull from the bottom. But God just said boom, split it. Symbolically and also really the curtain is torn down. It says through his body. That's just imagery that's deep. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, dot, 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 now what? The hinge turns. We're going to get three passages that all start with this phrase, let us. Let us. Therefore, since chapters 1 through 9, let us, these three things. Uh, he uses the phrase, phrase let us three times in this passage. It's interesting because throughout the whole book of Hebrews, he actually uses the let us phrase, I think, 13 times. 
at least 13 times. Like, for example, we read in chapter 4, there were a couple. Let us hold firmly to the faith faith we profess. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In chapter 6, it says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity. Do you remember that week? In chapters 12, there's a couple. uh, Let us throw off the sin that entangles us and hinders us. It also says, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably. That's just a few of the let us passages. But they're, they're really cool passages, and this is why. Let us, as a phrase, implies something. Sink, let it sink in. It's on the screen. Let us. What does it mean? What does it imply? Let us implies community. Not let you, let me, let us. It's the same thing we do in sports. If you're a sports fan and you've got a team and you're with another buddy that also likes the same sports team as you, it's, it's really cool because you start talking in the plural. Man, we got a good pick in the draft this year. We won this game. We lost this game. We, 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 we. And then non-sports fans are often annoyed by that. Like, what's this we business? You don't play football. You don't play basketball. It's like, yes, I do. (laughs) Every Sunday afternoon, I watch it for six hours. I'm on the team. Because it's this implied thing in sports. How fun would professional sports be if there were no fans? It would just be a note in the paper. I guess there's still newspapers. I don't know. Boston Red Sox win another game. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Cool. You know, who cares? But it's, it's actually the fans who make the sports more fun. And there's this implied community with sports. And I think that's a similar thing that happens with this let us passage. You were never meant to do this alone. You were supposed to do this in community. And so these three things that we're about to outline are really important for you individually. Yes, you, I told you last week, I am not responsible for your spiritual growth. You are. (laughs) But the good news is you don't have to do it alone. So let us let us. And so in chapter 10, we're going to get three of those. And I, I want to give them to you uh, one at a time. The first one, chapter 10, verse 22. It says, let us draw near to God. That's the one. Let us draw near to God with sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Your life should hinge at Jesus. If you're in the room today and you're like, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I came to church, still looking at it, I'm still figuring it out. I want you to know that's totally fine. We talked about that a few weeks ago in Hebrews that, you know, some are young Christians and some are mature Christians. And it's okay to be a young Christian. It's okay to be a person who's still seeking God. But I want you to know this message is written to people who already believe your life should hinge at Jesus. And the first thing we're called to do is to let us draw near. Let us draw near. What does this look like? When I want my daughter to know that I love her, I might lower my voice like this. And I might put my forehead on her forehead and look her in the eyes. And I'll say, hey, I love you. You're special to me. If they lined up all the little girls that have ever been born, I would pick you to be my daughter every time. But you drive me crazy. Probably because you're a 12-year-old girl and I'm a 40-year-old man and we do not speak the same language. (laughs) But I want you to know I love you. You see what I did there? You kind of went to that moment with me right there. That's me drawing near to my daughter. Drawing near is about intimacy. Drawing near is about uh, being personal with it. And a cool thing happens there when I do that with my daughter. I've told her that sentence. By the way, steal it. I stole it. They lined up every little girl in the whole world. I would choose you every time. Because as a parent, that's what you need to do. You can't be like, man, I wish I had those kids. (laughs) Um, This is our father, okay? And and we're told in Scripture, this is in the book of James, uh, chapter 4, verse 8. It says, draw near to God, 
and he will draw near to you. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Part of us drawing near to God is actually us throwing off our sin. That's actually something we cover in Hebrews chapter 12 later on. But when you draw near to God, he will draw near to you just the same way as when I lean into my daughter and I talk to her in that way. I'm drawing near to her, but she feels special. She's being drawn in to me. And when God wants us to draw into him, it's, it's a stark contrast between that and what happens with my kids when they're trying to hide something from me. They're being disobedient. They're maybe telling me some half-truths. They're maybe kind of skirting. Yeah, I don't know. Don't want to see me. Don't want to look me in the eyes right now. They're not drawing near. What are they doing? They're pushing me away. And that very simple illustration is exactly the two ways we can respond to God. We can draw near to him. By the way, that phrase draw near is very common in the Old Testament anytime they're talking about worship. That's kind of synonymous with worship. When you think of worship in a modern world, you're like, I listened to Christian radio in my car. The band played some songs that I thought were cool. Worship is about singing. It's about this moment where there's music. It's about this moment. No, no, no. Worship isn't about any of that. Worship is about drawing near to God. That intimate moment where I say, listen, I love you. You love me. How can we be on the same page with this? He says, let us draw near to God. Let's break down the rest of that little section. Uh, back to verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings. Paul's there. With a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings. That is a beautiful definition of worship. I'm sincere, and I'm doing my best to trust God. The assurance that faith brings. You don't have to have all the answers. Faith is about Faith is what connects what I know with what I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't have all the answers, but I'm going to come to God and I'm going to say, I genuinely want to know you. And I'm going to trust you as much as I can right now. The next part says, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Two things, sprinkled and water. Uh, what is that about? First of all, the sprinkle thing is a really cool imagery that we are not first century Jews. We would not pick up on this, okay? But I want to, this is... Uh, temple imagery this is priest imagery this is nasty but it is so true and so good do you know how it worked in the temple they would they would slaughter an animal okay there would be a, a lot of blood and it would be collected in a special bowl and a priest would take his fingers and he would dip it in the blood and he would sprinkle it in your face our modern sensibilities say ew I'll tell you what you don't forget that an animal just gave their life <laughs> unwillingly, to symbolically cover your debt to God. Your life is on the line for God because you disobeyed him, you sinned, you are far from him. And God says, for temporary time, I'm going to let the blood of this animal cover you. And it'd be one thing to be like, and we do this a lot, we outsource our guilt, and we, we like, man, I give a lot of money to charities, and I do this and I do this, we put stuff in the mail, we do it on the internet, it's over there. But in the temple system, it's like, no, you get in it, you get gritty, don't forget this. Having our hearts sprinkled, and then there's this very real sense that in Jesus' blood, it's the perfect sacrifice, not a lamb, not a goat, not a bull. The perfect sacrifice of the perfect Son of God, the one sprinkling covers you forever. Don't mix up sprinkling here with sprinkling that you might have heard that has to do with baptism. That's a different topic actually covered in the second half of this verse. This is about blood, not water. And we come into contact with Jesus' blood, and in that moment, we are purified. Strong imagery. Then the second half says, and having our bodies washed with pure water. This is a clear allusion to Christian baptism. And there's this moment, like this, First Peter talks about it, chapter 3, and it's like, what is, what is it? Is it? Is it washing dirt from my body? Like, is that why we walk down to the ocean and do baptisms and churches have baptistries in their buildings? You go to swimming pools, like, am I dirty? It says it's not the washing of dirt from our bodies. 
it's a pledge of a clean conscience towards God. And we're told in a couple of places that this is a moment where we come into contact with the sacrifice. And so in a very real way, like in the spiritual realm, our baptism is a moment where we come into contact with the blood of Jesus. This is why it's all here together. Why? Why are we bringing this up? Let us draw near to God. That's the big, the big category here. I think it's like this. I think that the writer is saying, remember your baptism. In my room, my wife and I have uh, pictures of us when we got married. We married 20 years, 19 years this May, uh, this past May, so almost 20 years. And, uh, you know, we've had a great marriage. I'm not going to act like we have all these terrible, terrible, rocky moments. But there have been times that you might be rough, and maybe, maybe you've had even rougher spots. But you can always look back to your wedding day and say, that's right, we made a commitment. And no matter where we are right now, we need to get back to that place. And so this moment says, listen, if you want to draw near to God, you need to go back to the moment the moment that you decided I'm in. I want to take a second here to, to talk about this. The church, um, the, the, the church worldwide, especially in America, there's, there's much less of an emphasis on, on baptism. But when you look at the early church, it's like that's the first thing we do. We're getting baptized. And so maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, but you've never taken that step to say, I, I need to get baptized. This is something that Jesus commands us to do. It's something that every single convert in the New Testament does immediately. And I want to encourage you. To point at that moment, I, it's not tearing down the faith you've had before. You're, you're on a journey. You're on this journey. And I encourage you, your next steps, like maybe I need to be baptized. Immersed in water, that's what, the, that's what the word baptism means. And so if you want to talk about baptism, come speak to me. Speak to one of our leaders at the end of the service. But that's a beautiful thing. Draw near to God. And that drawing near is our response to the hinge. Think about who I was before Jesus. Think about who I'm supposed to be after Jesus. And the first step is draw near. Worship. Become intimate with him. The second thing, verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we professed, for he who promised is faithful. So hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. It's, it's so easy to weave and bob, bob in your faith journey. You been there? Yeah, it's more like a roller coaster, actually. <laughs> Highs and lows. And one way to help smooth out the swerving is to look back to that hinge moment. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Like I said about your wedding day or your baptism or whatever. It's like you might get to a moment where you've got doubts, you've got questions, you don't know where it is from here, and you look back at the faithfulness of God so far for you. And maybe you don't see it much in your life. You can look at the faithfulness of God in other people's life. Look back. And if you do that, you can hold unswervingly. Like a driver in a car, the goal is to stay the course unswervingly. Drivers who swerve maniacally when they see something in the road, they end up in the ditch. Okay? And I think we do that with our faith sometimes. Oh, no! I have doubts, and then crash, crash, boom. Life can be hard, and it throws us unexpected curveballs, but the goal is stay the course. Okay, and you're going to swerve, and you're going to miss, and you might end up in a ditch every now and then. That's what the church is for. We're here to build each other up <laughs> and help us to get back on course. But that idea of holding unswervingly is strong. Uh, I, I, love, I love meeting someone who's been in the faith for a long time, and, it's, and, they, and they go back and they tell you their testimony about a rough patch. And then they're like, on the other side, I, I made it through, and I, it was my faith and my hope that brought me through. And so hold on, so that's the second thing, let us hold unswervingly. So let us draw near to God, let us hold unswervingly, stay the course. Verse 24, third, and let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see a day approaching. Let us implies community. 
You were not made to do this alone. So when you get together with other believers, whether it's on Sunday morning to eat bacon to celebrate dads, or on the beach to sit in the sun, or group going to summer camp later today, or small group, or you just go to lunch with a friend. They don't go to church with you, but you know they have faith in Jesus. And you're, it, this, this is that encouragement. Together, we intentionally encourage one another on towards love and good deeds. This very tangible thing, love and good deeds, like I think we want to encourage each other to have the same exact understanding of God as us. We encourage, it doesn't say encourage one another on towards deep theology. I'm not anti-understanding God, but I have found that discussing theology deeply has done more to divide the church than it has to unite the church. What he's encouraging us to do with one another is to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, because that's the difference in the world. Often when humans get together and discuss anything, it devolves into a gripe fest. You ever been at a PTA meeting? You ever been to a parents meeting for a sports team? You ever been to a church before? People get together and the longer they talk, the more it turns into, oh man, you know what? Whoever's in charge of this is not good at being in charge of this. Whew, I'll tell you what. When so-and-so was here, they used to do it better. Or over across town, they do it better. We love to gripe. We love to gripe. And when we get together, you know what the church is really good at? Getting together on and spurring each other on in griping, grumbling, and complaining. And I think that the author of this message knows that that's a problem. So he says, when you get together, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too cold in here. I know. We can't get the air conditioner right. But have you been loving somebody in your life? <laughs> what can we do together to help this family in need? What can we do to help this young lady who is, who is single and struggling and got issues? What can we do uh, to make my workplace a better environment that leads people closer to God? Yeah, there's room to discuss the air conditioner and the color of the carpet and where you, whatever. But that's not the purpose of the church. We're together to drive and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And then he points out in verse 25. He says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. I have friends who are convinced that they do not need to attend and be involved in a church community to have faith in Jesus. And I struggle with that because the truth is, I know some really good Christians who are not involved in church at all. There are a lot of reasons. They've been hurt by the church, they're jaded by, you know, money, or they're too busy, or there's lots of different things. And so I, I have some friends who make a pretty good case for that, uh, but I do believe that it falls right in the face of this passage if that's the way you want to live. Because we're not meant to do this alone. It's really good if you can manage your sin and your own accountability and your own Bible study and your own faith and your witness to the world. On your own, that's great. But what happens when your strength isn't enough? You need community. You need people around you. Let us not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's what we saw happen during the pandemic. And we as a church tried so hard to do everything we could to be together. But worldwide, we saw people's faith just struggling. Online church just doesn't do it. It's not enough to just watch someone preach. By the way, there's enough sermons on YouTube right now. You could never be involved in a church family ever again. Okay, And they're better than me. I'll tell you that. I watch them. <laughs> You, this, this, isn't, this, what I'm doing is not what the church is. 
but letting us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. And so let us draw near, let us hold unswervingly, and let us spur one another on. Um, I want to point out a discouraging trend that we see in the world and just kind of maybe just give you some food for thought. And this kind of goes on to the last one here, spurring one another on and not giving up meeting together. There's a discouraging trend in surveys that have been going around for, for years now that the average Christian who had identified themselves as an active, strong Christian, that their idea of being involved in a Christian community is going to church once every six to eight weeks. Now, I think this comes from the generation before or the generation before our our grandparents, great-grandparents, they were at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They held like two, three-week-long revival services, and that was great because in their mind, we got to meet together as often as possible, which is really good. But what happened was a lot of young kids got drugged to church, and no one explained why we were doing this, and they hated it. They hated it, they hated it, they hated it. And so as, when they got growing up, they're like, I'm not going that often. I'm not making my kids do that. And they may still love Jesus, and they had a faith and all this, but more and more, uh, Less, less and less people were making regular attendance at church things important. And I get it. You have your own reasons, and you're smart. I'm not even going to say that any of you aren't capable of managing your own thoughts, right? You're smart. But let me tell you why this is a problem. I want you to hear this. The reason this is a problem is because our kids are watching us. And what we do tells our kids what is important. And they don't understand all of the thoughts that went on in our minds, that led us to a point where we say, well, we, I do my own devotional time and my own, and I just do this and this and this and this. That's great for you. But do you know when you miss church for six weeks, your kids miss church for six weeks? And do you know what they deal with on a daily basis in school and when they're watching the Internet? And who is raising their kids? I mean, who is raising them? Their friends. <laughs> the Internet. Their teachers. And I'm not the one that wants you to bring your, drag your kid kicking and screaming to church every week. In fact, if you're doing it that way, you're probably not communicating well. <laughs> you, you, can, you can not do that. It's possible. But for them to have a community of peers that are trying to grow on their own and that are, are seeing this day in and day out and to see it as a commitment, you know, gonna, you know what they're going to do if they come and they're super involved? They're going to do that for their kids. And that's why when you look at the law of Moses, one of the most important things is what we teach our children and how we show our children our faith through our actions and how we manage our schedules. And so is this a slap on the wrist for everyone who thinks I don't need to come to church uh, but once every six to eight weeks? Yes. But it's not from me. It's from history. It's from statistics. It's from God's word. I want to encourage you to make it a priority. No one is taking attendance here. No one, Okay. <laughs> There are no gold stars for attendance in heaven. But it's very important for your own faith and for the faith of our children that we are committed to this and committed to one another. Let us not give up meeting together. All right, so those are the three. Um, and honestly, that is a solid response to the hinge. Okay, we're drawing near to God. We're worshiping. Uh, we're going to stay the course and just try to draw from our own faith and our own hope. And we're going to do it together. We're going to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. As we wrap up today, I want to give us our challenge. Every week we have a challenge, something to take home, something to actually put into action. And this challenge this week has two parts, okay? And so if you're a note taker or if you take pictures of the screen or whatever, uh, notice there are going to be two parts here. The first part is this. This week, I want to ask you, and right now maybe, write it down if you're, if you're a, a writer down of notes. Identify a hinge moment for you 
a hinge moment that brought you to where you are in your faith today. Like, you might not even identify as a Christian right now, but you're here today. Today could be a hinge moment for you. <laughs> Everything from here on out could change for you. Uh, for me, it, I could point to that, that week of camp in 1999. I could probably point to a couple of other moments. But what is a moment in your life that you're like, this is the day that I decided to do things differently. And it's important to remember that moment because it's important to look back at that moment. Maybe you remember your baptism. Maybe you have a certificate or a picture of that. There's a moment. For some of you, it's a long time ago. For some of you, it's very recently. And for some of us, it's in the future. And I look forward to that day for you. That's part one. Just identify it. Because being aware of it will remind you why you did this in the first place. And the second half is this. Half is this. Connect with someone you can encourage on their faith journey. How are those connected? We are told to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And we are so um, inwardly focused sometimes with our faith. We're like, I have questions. I have doubt. I have fear. I have pain. I need answers. Me, 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 me. Yes, that's fine. That's, and that's really good. But the value of drawing near to God by simply encouraging someone else cannot be overstated. I want to encourage you to think of one person right now that you will text or call this week or meet with coffee, grab a meal with, and just say, hey, how's your faith? How's your faith doing? How's your spiritual life? How can I pray for you? That's a great question. How can I pray for you? Is there any way that I can help you as you walk with God? You don't have to come, you know, pretentiously, like you've got it all put together because they know. They know you don't. <laughs> and What's beautiful about that is that building of that relationship, it comes right back to you tenfold. Because that relationship has been built, and they're going to encourage you, and it's going to grow. And then that's our challenge this week. Look at the hinge moment, but more importantly, look to someone that you can connect with this week to encourage. One text will make a world of difference. A phone call will be even better. Sitting face-to-face, -face, maybe sharing a meal. Who knows? That could be a hinge moment for them for the rest of their life. Who will it be? Uh, or maybe you're ready to get started on the journey today. Um, if, you, if you're in a place where you're like, I just need a hinge moment, I, I'll tell you how to connect with someone in just a minute when we get ready for communion. But I'm, I'm going to tell you, there's a moment today in this service when you can go to the back of the room, you can meet with one of our elders, you can meet with one of our, our, our later, lady, lady leaders, you can meet with a friend that you already know, and there'll be a time in this service where you can start that today. But let, let's not just sit around doing nothing. Let's have a hinge moment. Let me read our passage to us again, 19 through 25, and now it means so much more. Therefore... Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, one, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, two, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Three, and let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us. Let's pray.